We read it as well from Psalm 32, a uh, psalm aimed at moving God's people to repentance for their sins. Read the whole psalm, 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Would you then turn please to Luke chapter 23. And I'll read verses 33 to 43 text for the sermon, Luke 23, verse 33, passage that describes the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, 
Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to make the most of the time you've given us, to make the most of it also by repenting of our sins, seeking your grace and your help, that we might serve you acceptably. Father, enable us to give attention to your word so that we might be encouraged to repentance, to gratitude and to service. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, we have just witnessed an excommunication this morning. And this is a painful experience, especially for the family, but also for the elders and, in fact, for the whole congregation. We could wish that these things were never necessary. But we do know that the Lord has his purposes with such things and his purposes are always good and just. He always turns evil to good as well. He commands discipline and he does so for his own glory, for the good of the church and also for the welfare of sinners. But one of the things that we don't know in detail is the plans, uh, whatever plans the Lord may have for individuals in their uh, rest of whatever time they have on this, this life, in this life, including those who turn away from him. We don't know exactly what the Lord has planned for each individual. Of course, we know ultimately, we know what happens to those who turn away finally, those who turn, turn away from the Lord completely, but we don't know how the Lord will work in a sinner's life on earth in the years ahead, whether that person will repent or whether they will remain in their sins. And it is partly for that reason that we often make the comment, while there's life, there's hope, because we don't know those things. In this passage before us, we see two very different outcomes in these two thieves who were crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see also, we know as we read the whole of these accounts in the Gospels, accounts of the crucifixion, we also know that there were others around at that time, others witnessing the crucifixion of Christ, who also show varied reactions. And we look at two types of reaction. One, our first point, defiance to the end. And then secondly, repentance before the end. Defiance over against repentance. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18... The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. According to this passage, the whole gospel is a stumbling block and foolishness and weakness to both Jews and to Gentiles. And Corinthians 1 verse 23 also brings that out strongly. And we certainly see that, that truth at work here in Luke 23, at the actual point of the crucifixion. So 1 Corinthians 1 is saying the whole truth about the crucifixion of Christ is something that does not go down well with sinners, with those who are in their sins. And so not surprisingly, we see 
the same kind of reaction at the very point of the crucifixion. And here in this passage, we see three very defiant reactions. You have the rulers, that is the members of the Sanhedrin, sneering at Christ and saying he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, and the implication is there, they do not believe that he is. You have the soldiers also mocking, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves, also dividing up his clothes and holding cheap wine out to him. The language implies holding it out just out of reach. Verses 36 and 37. And then you have one of the criminals hurling abuse at him, as it says. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 39. And in fact, in Luke 27, verse 44, we find that initially both of the criminals were insulting the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very bitter attack on the Lord Jesus at his lowest, most agonising point, uh, what we would sometimes call adding insult to injury. But it comes because the gospel of salvation in Christ alone and by him crucified is foolishness to the world. And of course, behind all of that and above and beyond all of that, it comes ultimately because this was part of God's plan of salvation. But in terms of human consciousness in their reactions, it came because they saw it all as foolishness, those who were defying the Jewish leaders, they couldn't get their head around it. How could God allow a true, his true Messiah? How could God allow such a one to suffer so much? Obviously, from their point of view, he had been guilty of some terrible sins and now God was punishing him. Uh, this clearly shows that the Jewish leaders had not understood Isaiah 53, a passage with which they were very familiar they had not understood that the Lord Jesus was suffering for the sins of the elect, not for his own sins. The Gentiles witnessing these things also saw it as ridiculous. That one who claimed to be, again from their point of view, one who claimed to be a son of a god should have more superpowers or something, a kind of Hercules or someone like that who should be able to pull himself off the crossed and lay waste to all his enemies around and save anybody else he wanted. Moreover, one who claimed to be king of the Jews, he even had a sign saying it above the cross, top of the cross above him. One who claimed to be king of the Jews, certainly not looking much like a king now, his robes being divided up by soldiers, the wine held out to him just out of reach and so on, and his own people, his own subjects rejecting him. All of this is, of course, part of the defiance, the mockery of hell on the part of those who, whether they knew it or not, were under the control, they were in bondage to Satan. But more than that, the Lord Jesus had to suffer the agony of hell. He had to suffer imprisonment. He had to be found guilty. He had to be condemned to death with all comforts and all friendship stripped away from him, alienation from God, alienation from his fellow man, and also to experience hatred and mockery and sarcasm 
all of that over against delighting in and rejoicing in the truth of God because that is the nature of hell. The ultimate place of alienation, of separation from God and man, of hatred, of mockery, also between men, that is the nature of hell. God delivered his son over to this because it is what sinners deserve, because it is what we would otherwise deserve. And the mockery is part of that judgment. And uh, when uh, sinners are consigned to hell, those who remain steadfast in their rejection of Christ, they will also uh, understand the mockery and the sarcasm and the pain and the alienation of hell. But in some ways it is still surprising that the people of Israel, the rulers, took this stance. They're covenant people. God's covenant people. They were steeped in the Old Testament and all the messianic prophecies. They were aware of passages like Isaiah 53. And so in some ways it's surprising that of all people they should mock the Lord Jesus in this way. But in some ways it's even more surprising that the criminals next to Christ would also take that stance. These men are called robbers in Matthew 27 verse 44 and Mark 15 verse 27, fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 12, he was numbered with transgressors. Luke calls them criminals in verses 33 and 39. And you put those two words together to understand the nature of these men, the two thieves on the cross. And uh, the word robber there implies violent robbery. So they weren't just robbers, they were those who robbed others with violence, uh, probably killing some of those whom they robbed. And the word criminal means they were evildoers. And in fact, the Romans generally only crucified people for pretty extreme things, for one of two things, usually murder, and uh, not always, but very frequently they crucified people for murder. And the other thing they crucified them was for was insurrection. So rebelling against the Roman authority. Basically, anyone that the Romans saw as disturbing the peace was someone who ought to be uh, killed in the most horrible way by crucifixion. Most likely then, these robbers had attacked Romans, tried to rob them, or maybe they'd made the roads so generally unsafe that they were considered to be great disturbers of the peace, serious criminals, who should have the book thrown at them. The repentant thief in verse 41 says that they were suffering justly for their deeds. He at least comes to realise, and this is why I say that it's uh, in some ways surprising that of all the people who mocked Christ, that the thieves should do so. And one of them comes to realise this, and he says how terrible it is. He recognises how terrible it is for a man who is justly under the judgment of God for doing evil to mock someone who is suffering unjustly as he realised that Christ was, that he was personally innocent. Verse 40. That's why I say in some ways more surprising that these men would also take up those insults. But this highlights a point that I want to make about those who take offence at the gospel. And it's an important point. And it is that if God does not soften hearts, if he does not give a sinner a new heart, 
A sinner will never be able to do anything but reject the Son of God, no matter how unjust or unreasonable his arguments or his views are. Even after a million years of suffering in hell, if they have years in eternity, I don't even know if we can speak that way, but even after millions of years of suffering in hell, the wicked, like their master Satan and in bondage to him, will still despise the Lord Jesus Christ and they will hate the gospel and they will still mock the truth even though they will know that it is truth. They will know that it is truth, but they will hate that fact. They will not love it. It is no surprise, therefore, that there are many unbelievers around today in universities, in politics, in the media, and so forth, who are mocking the Christian faith. And they are mocking the Christian faith, many of them, even when they get themselves into the most tragic and terrible situations and totally mess up their own lives and make themselves horribly miserable by their own sins, even when they hit rock bottom, still they maintain that rejection of Christ because and, and refuse to turn to God in, even in their desperation. They continue to act like this thief who hurled all this abuse at the Lord Jesus Christ and harden their hearts even further unless God intervenes in their lives. And that observation is something that should raise a warning note. Even hitting rock bottom does not open the eyes of the blind unless the Lord intervenes. The Jewish robbers, the Jewish leaders, they knew the truth, at least to an extent. They were raised in the Old Testament they were surrounded by a culture that knew the Old Testament and referred to it constantly, but they rejected it. And some of them rejected it to the very end. And this too is a warning that no covenant member should ever leave the Lord's ways. Not even with the idea of maybe coming back later when it suits you. A very common idea, I've heard it many times. You place yourself in the devil's hands and he will never want to let you go. Apostasy is a straitjacket that you cannot get out of. You make the Lord your enemy, but don't then demand that he must intervene at your convenience, especially if he has shown you the mercy of first putting you in a covenant home and church, and then you spit that back in his face. He does Show mercy. And this is a point I'm going to emphasize in the second point. He can and he does show mercy to some in these situations. But those who presume upon his mercy and continue to take or try to take evil advantage of it cannot expect that mercy to be shown to them again at their convenience. And that's where we have to take a warning from this. And not, and not ever take apostasy lightly. Well, uh, as I said, there is also, in, and we look at this in our second point, this comforting observation, this truth. The repentant thief presume upon God's mercy. And yet clearly he was shown mercy. 
the genuine case of a deathbed conversion, so to speak. Our second and final point, repentance before the end. Now, we could no doubt speculate about the psychology of the repentant thief, why one repented, one didn't. But it is far more important for us to ask why God enabled him to repent at the last moment. And of course, we don't know all of the Lord's reasons, or even many of his reasons. But there is something that we can glean from the text here. And that is that God was glorifying his own name. And he was doing that by demonstrating the power of the gospel in the midst of those, in the very midst of those, right at the heart of it, the very midst of those who had gathered together to make a statement about how weak and foolish they considered the gospel to be. And at a point when if anybody would ever have any pretense of a reason or an argument to show how helpless Jesus was rather than being Lord and Saviour and King, in the very, at that very point when there appeared most of all to be an argument for that, God shows and glorifies his own name by demonstrating the power of the gospel. And the gospel comes out very clearly in this passage. In verse 34, Jesus calls on the Father to forgive those who are acting in ignorance, whether they be Romans or Jews. He doesn't specify And with with that kind of language, we could think of 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, where the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a violent aggressor. Not that different from a violent robber and evildoer. A violent aggressor who was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. This is not to say that all who act ignorantly in unbelief are shown mercy. It's making the point really that deliberate sin, when we know that something is wrong, deliberate sin receives a greater penalty than sins of ignorance, but it does remind us that God is able to save even the the hardest of hearts, the hardest of sinners. Note though how the unlookers respond to that gospel prayer of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus prays for the forgiveness of his enemies with the gospel in the background there, the gospel implied. And how do the people around, as they hear that, how do they respond to it? Well, they divide up his garments, they sneer at him, they mock him, they taunt him, they hurl abuse at him, they taunt him with this, with sour wine. And they level, and this is common to all of the, the, the opposition to him here at this point, this common theme, they level the accusation against him that he cannot bring forgiveness or salvation to anyone. What's the Lord's response to that accusation? He doesn't give a, a direct verbal answer to this mocking. In fact, he has to endure the mocking because he is called to endure it. He is called to suffer this as part of the agony of hell that he suffers in our place. So he doesn't give a direct verbal answer to it, but God does give an answer to it. He gives an answer by rescuing one of the criminals while the other one is in the very act of saying, you're not the Christ or you'd save us. And in the very midst of that, the Lord does exactly that. Someone is saved. There's a massive irony in this passage here. And it's great. The Lord does save one of the two men 
who seems farthest from salvation, men who probably knew something of the Old Testament, but who, men who had been covenant members, but they turned away from it to a life of gross sin, robbery and violence and evil doing as, it's, as it describes. But then one of these men begs the Lord Jesus to remember him when he comes in his kingdom, verse 42. In other words, the Holy Spirit has enabled this sinner to recognize that that mocking sign up on the cross above Jesus, King of the Jews, is actually true. He is the king and he will come in his kingdom. The Lord's answer to that request is another gospel proclamation Another gospel guarantee right here in the midst of Jesus' extremity at the point when he seems the weakest, when he seems to be the most guilty and helpless and unable to save anybody. And at that very point, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Because the Lord Jesus knew that his death could and would save this man and many others from his and their many and great sins. And who but God could give such an assurance? And what an assurance it is from one disgraced and mocked and tortured as a criminal. What a proclamation this is. This is not the mewling of a weak and broken man. This is a royal, powerful declaration from our almighty Lord and Saviour, even at that greatest point of suffering. The Lord Jesus does not for a moment swerve from his gospel mission. And again, I want to ask you to consider the implications of this for ourselves. What we learn from this is that God can and does show mercy to sinners and even to the worst of sinners, even to those who have broken covenant and turned away from him and committed gross sins knowing full well what they were doing, knowing that God hates such things, but they did it anyway. We learn that God can and does save sinners at the last moment. He can even save excommunicated sinners when all hope seems lost, even on the deathbed, so to speak. Such is the power of God, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, power of the gospel, the power of the cross. And this is the basis, above all, for that statement that we often hear in our churches, where there is life, there is hope. This is a comfort for those who care more for rebellious sinners than they often do for themselves. It's the case when Christian loved ones and fellow church members the way, that they, the way that we regard such things, uh, we, um, you know, often people accuse Christians in excommunication of being uh, harsh and unloving. The reality is we actually, in doing these things, we care more about sinners than they do about themselves. The harshness and the unlovingness is in turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ and his people and inflicting all of those things upon yourself. So that is the comfort, but it comes with a very serious warning, as we've seen. 
that we should never presume upon God's mercy and think that we can rebel now, repent later when we want, which is really a way of saying, I want to have my cake and eat it too. Because those who reason that way may well end up like the other thief, the one who, to the bitter end, maintained that hardness of heart. As I say, that hardness of heart is a straitjacket that uh, you can't break out of yourself. And the Lord's mercy is not softness. Like his justice, his mercy is designed to uphold his glory, to further the gospel, to help his church and to save elect sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ is known by faith and faith comes with repentance. It is a gift of God. It is not a gift of man's own manipulation to suit his sinful interests. But for all who do turn from their sins to the Lord Jesus. We have this confidence. And it's not a confidence that comes to us from a weak and powerless and ineffective and broken man on a cross. It is one who comes to us from our majestic, sovereign and merciful God. And that is what gives us our certainty that we also will be with him in paradise. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to love both your justice and your holiness, as well as your grace and mercy. Father, do not let us presume upon your mercy while ignoring your justice and holiness. But do not let us uh, underestimate the extent of your mercy either even to the worst of sinners. We thank you that we can say, while there's life, there's hope, because of your sovereign grace, ultimately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We praise the Lord that he has severed sin's bonds and in the process delivered us Hymn 361, we'll stand to sing. And would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 361.
After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 60, stanza 8. The Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen.